So a week ago, I was sitting at Arby's thinking about how I should introduce this sermon. And so local floor news happened to be on, and, one, and there was a, and it was talking about our community. One of the one of the reports that grabbed my attention was about was a poll that was just recently taken on how many people are worried about our nation's future. I mean, the the statistic number was was huge. It was that every two out of three people have fears and are worried about our nation's future. I was like, this number is crazy. This 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 can't be right. So I did some more research and I grabbed some statistics from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And these were these are updated in August of 2017, so it, it is recent. So did you know that 40 million adults in the U.S. are diagnosed with anxiety disorders? That's 18.1% of Americans. That is just shy of one out of every five people. And did you also know that 25% of kids in the U.S. from ages 13 to 18 are diagnosed with anxiety disorders? That's one out of four kids. That's a lot of people. So th- th- that those statistics show that fear and anxiety are real. They're real things that real people struggle with every single day. So each and every person in this room does not go throughout a day where they do not have a situation or a fear they struggle with. So I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we can't stop these fears. But I believe there is a way that we can overcome these fears and anxieties through the power of God and Christ's work on the cross. So if I were to say that this sermon is going to get rid of your fears and your anxieties and make your life easier, I'd be lying to you. Fears and anxieties are always going to haunt us as we live on this earth. But there is a way I believe that we can overcome these fears. In 1 Peter 5, 6 we're going to five six to eleven. We're going to look at a part of a letter written by the apostle uh, Peter to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. They, they were facing an unbelievable amount of fears because what they believed in was getting them killed and tortured. So Peter calls them to be humble and stand firm in the faith. He explains a way that they are able to get a sense of comfort in their struggles. So this morning we're going to look at three practices. To humble ourselves before God. So, so often we say, well, we need to have humility. But we never really figure out how we truly play that out in our lives. But I believe in the passage in 1 Peter 5, we're going to look at three practices that humble ourselves before God through fears and anxieties. And the first practice we see in verses 6 and 7 is to cast your anxieties on God. The verses 6 and 7 say, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So verse 6 is, is, what is humility and why is it significant? So humble yourselves, therefore. When, the word, when we see the word therefore, we know that the following verses behind it are implying what was just recently stated. The so verse 5 says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders. Clothe all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter takes this from Proverbs three thirty four, where it says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. So we must decide whether we are going to humbly submit to God and his will, or we're going to do what we think is best in our lives, and choose what we think is best. Naturally, we're going to choose what we think is best. The human race is selfish and self-oriented due to our sinful nature. 
So this verse helps us to see that we must humble ourselves before God because God will lavish his favor upon those who humble before him. So when we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us. Since God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, we should humble ourselves before him. When we humble ourselves, we will experience God's grace and he will bestow his favor upon those who acknowledge their need for him. However, when we do not humble ourselves, it is a sin. Why? Because worrying is a a form of pride. It denies our full trust and care in God's sovereignty. It puts ourselves in the position of authority. We say, no, I can figure this problem out on my own. Yeah, times are hard, but I can do this myself. We push aside the fact that God is all-loving, all-powerful, and all-caring, And do what we think can help us in time of need. The antidote to our worries and fears is believing in and resting in the God's care that he can only promise. So when we we struggle or have fears in our lives, I think we do one of two things. We either push it aside like nothing is wrong, or we avoid every circumstance and scenario that that would overcome that. So so the problem with these is that they're not going to last long. Eventually, we're not going to just be able to walk away from our fears. So we must humble ourselves before God and recognize who he is and what he has done. Because God's providence will kill our fear and give us comfort. So in this passage, we see an expression similar to the Old Testament when God delivers Israel out of Egypt. So in Exodus 13.3, we see Moses talking to children of Israel and it says, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. So, so the image of a mighty hand of God emphasizes his power. The power of God is humbling. His power is so great that it's fearful to man. And so the mighty hand of God was a reminder to the people of Israel that it was God's power that brought them out of Israel. It was his work that, that was their deliverance. It was not something that they did. It wasn't some action or lifestyle that they lived. It was God's power that delivered them from Egypt. This also shows that God loved them, that he is God alone, that the proper response to him is obedience. So Peter gives us this illustration to remind the readers that we are loved by God and that he is powerful enough to deliver us in our time of need. So we must humble ourselves by relying on him alone. No matter how big our problems are, God can conquer them. But humility is not the end result. So so we looked back at the Old Testament to help us recognize the future of our deliverance. Let me explain. Since God does not change, his character from the Old Testament to the New Testament does not change, doesn't that mean we can have full trust and assurance that the promises God made are going to happen? Because God will deliver us, and he will exalt us at the proper time. This goes perfectly in line with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 23, 12. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So God is so powerful and so mighty that those who are against him will be humbled and be submissive to God. So Saul was on his way to persecute Christians for... When, when, and then Christ appeared to him. So Christ's light was so bright and his voice was so powerful that he fell to the ground. Christ's light blinded him. 
Saul was so fearful of the power and the magnitude of Christ that the only thing he could think of was to fall to the ground and just listen to what Christ said. He then changes his whole life around to live for Christ. He lived in humility by only caring for others, caring for the church, and advancing for the sake of the gospel. So when we humble ourselves before God, we will be exalted. But Peter was not promising this vindication and exaltation in this life. He did not promise that once we humble ourselves before God, all of our problems will just go away. The exaltation we are promised will come in eternal glory. We are going to experience trials and tribulations every day. But at the due time or the last days, we will be sanctified in Christ and lifted on high by God's grace forever. We will be worshiping him in heaven with no sorrow, with no fear, with no anxieties, with no problems, with no sin. It's just us praising God for who he is and what he's done. So what does it mean for us to be humble before the almighty hand of God? We humble ourselves before the almighty hand of God by simply submitting to him. If, if we as believers are placed under the mighty hand of God, no one or nothing can touch us. Nothing in all of his creation can steal us or defeat us. Jesus defeated the cross and had the ultimate victory. He literally conquered sin and death. Everything we already have to fear has already been defeated. We must put our trust in God that he will deliver us because we know he has the power to do so. So if our faith is placed in him, we can experience his care and he will exalt us at the right time. So how do we practice humility? So how does this work with our fears, though? We, we can humbly submit our lives to God. But how do we submit our fears and anxieties? Verse 7 gives us this answer clear as day. By casting all of our anxieties on him. We can humble ourselves before this all-powerful and sovereign God by casting our anxieties on him. If we continue in our worries and try to solve our own problems by ourselves, we cave into pride. Some of you are probably thinking, well, how, how can my anxiety and worry be criticized as pride? But worry is a form of pride when we are, because we are convinced that we must solve all of our problems within our own lives, with our own strength, with our own knowledge. The only God we would be trusting in is ourselves. But when we throw our worries upon God, it expresses our trust in his sovereignty and his mighty hand. We acknowledge that he is Lord and sovereign over all the universe and that he is the one who spoke it on to existence. So throwing our anxieties on God is a decisive act on our part. We cannot just be like, well, I, I guess I give these problems to you. No, it's a God. I cannot do this on my own. I need you. I need your help. I am giving it all to you. It's not something we should just do because the Bible tells us to do it. We need to give all of our fears and anxieties to God because he is the one true God that has the power overall and can conquer our fears and anxieties. But I think it's important to remember the context of this passage to help demonstrate the point I'm trying to get across. So Peter was writing this to Christians who would be persecuted in their faith. He tells them to cast their anxieties on God because he cares for them. So Christians in this time period, I mean, their, their fears were beyond belief. 
They were being tortured and killed for something they believed in and thought to be true. But Peter tells them to trust in God because he will save them. That brought them a sense of comfort even though their lives were at stake. So if you think you can do this all on your own, you can't. If you think you can overcome the world on your own, you can't. Problems, you can't. Fears, you can't. Sin, you cannot. There is nothing within yourself that can save you or give you comfort in the midst of tribulations. So we must humble ourselves before the almighty, loving God and cast our anxieties on him. We must give it all to him. Not just bits and portions of our lives. We must give it all. No one will cast their anxieties or tell someone their problems if the person they're seeking from help will not give them comfort or give them a solution to their problem. They also don't ask for help from someone who is cruel or apathetic because they don't want their worries to be mocked by a lack of concern. So it only makes eminent sense for, for us to give our anxieties to God because he cares for us. God is not indifferent, nor is he cruel. He is compassionate to his children and will, get, and will sustain them in every distress. So when we look back at the practice for our first practice of humility, we see that we can humble ourselves before the almighty God. We need to give up what we think is best and throw our anxieties on God. We need to be willing to say, I cannot do this on my own. I need your help. I need you. We need to recognize who the creator of the world is, who is the beginning and the end, who sent Christ to die on the cross to conquer our sins, to conquer the grave, and to ultimately defeat sin and death. If we try to conquer our own fears and anxieties, we're ultimately just going to make our own problems and fail at the end. But rather, we need to cast all of our anxieties on him. So in verses 8 and 9, we're going to look at the second practice that humbles us before God. Stand firm in your faith. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So be sober and controlled and alert. John MacArthur describes being sober-minded like this. The ordering and balancing of life's important issues requires the discipline of mind that avoids the intoxicating allurements of the world. So we need to have discipline of our body and mind by not being wrapped up in this world so we can live balanced lives. Well, we, we need to have self-control. We need to train our minds and our bodies to resist the tr- attractiveness of this world. I mean, I say we need self-control, but we can't do this on our own. It's not something that we can just do. We need to let God have full control over our lives. And the next part, be watchful. This is our call to vigilance. We as believers need to be careful watch from the, from the devil who is on the prowl. He seeks to destroy faith. The devil and sin inflict pain on people so that they may deny Christ in their trials. So Peter paints the picture of a devil like a roaring lion. So on YouTube, there are uh, many videos of lions attacking animals on the safari plains of Africa. And one, one video in particular was of a zebra that was, was a couple of zebras that were crossing the road while there were some photographers trying to get pictures of them. While the zebras were crossing the road, everything seemed perfectly fine. Just another day on the safari. 
And once the zebras crossed the road, a lion jumped up and attacked one of the zebras. The lion was so well hidden that not even the camera crew saw it. The zebras were not watching out for lions. They were simply crossing the road to get some grass. And the lion came out of nowhere and killed his prey. So I think this is important to point out because that's the same exact way the devil and sin attack us. We get wrapped up in worldly things. We think everything is good and nothing is going wrong until we get attacked by a dilemma. The devil roars like a lion to induce fear into people. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will surrender at the prospect of suffering. So if people deny, they have, they deny that they have faith in God, the devil has devoured them and leaves them spiritually dead. He will tear them down to the very lowest point and leave them there so they can't get back up. Thus, the devil wins. So these points help us to see when we do not resist the devil. So you're probably thinking, well, how do I just resist the devil? I think the NIV best translates this portion of verse 9 for us. Resist him standing firm in the faith. So this call to resistance does not summon us to do some superhero acts for God. We're not called to gather all of our resources and do some great works. It does not matter how good we are or what we do. Resisting the devil, that means we must remain firm in our faith that is trusting in God's providential hand. This is where we see a tie back in where we need to be humble before the almighty hand of God. We must humble ourselves and put all of our trust in God. If we trust in ourselves and do not trust in God and say, I can do this on my own, we fall into pride. If we try to solve our own problems by ourselves, we're not going to succeed permanently. We may be able to rid our fears for a short period of time, but they're going to creep right back into our lives just like they did the first time. So when we continue to place our trust and faith in God, we will triumph over sin and the devil. When we have faith that he truly cares, we get a sense of peace. When we understand that he will sustain us to the very end, we will have a comfort in our struggles. We must persevere in our faith no matter what life throws at us. So the last portion of verse 9 says, Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by their brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter is writing this to Christians who are being persecuted. He's basically saying, you're not alone in your suffering. I feel like this is an encouragement to the readers because they know that persecution is not only happening to them. Sometimes I feel like everyone doesn't realize that everybody has fears and anxieties. I I know I'm preaching this to you. But I struggle with these every single day. I'm a 16-year-old male who is a junior in a private high school. I cannot tell you a single day that I don't have a worry or an anxiety. This sermon is not just something I'm preaching to you guys just to preach on it. I'm preaching this because it has an impact on my life, and I hope that it has the same impact on you. So going back, our first practice was casting your anxieties on God. And our second practice was stand firm in your faith. So when we stand firm in our faith, through God's power, we're able to resist the devil. We cannot do it on our own. Faith is part of humility because it puts our trust in God rather than ourselves. So through faith, we are able to resist the devil. 
And it is only through God's power that we can do that. So moving on to verses 10 and 11, we're going to look at the third and final practice that humbles us before God. So focus on our hope, verses 10 and 11. And after you had suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to, be, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter begins by designating God as the God of all grace. Richard L. Strauss says it like this. That means he has an inexhaustible supply of good gifts, which are adequate for every conceivable need, and which are available to all who will receive them, regardless of their performance. So God's grace is never ending. No matter how we perform in our life, even if we mess up, and we mess up a lot, his grace still rushes like a river over us. Our sufferings are intense and hard. We struggle all the time, whether it be work, supporting a family, paying off debts, or we have spiritual afflictions. These things aren't always easy, and they can drag us far down. But no matter what happens in our life, we have to realize that God's grace is always going to be stronger. We may not always feel like God is there, but he always is there to give us peace in the midst of our struggles. So the call we see in verse 10 refers to God's effective work by which he inducts us into a saving relationship with him. He calls us to salvation. This idea is, is clear because we as believers are called to be glorified by God and worship him forever. So we do not deserve God's salvation. We deserve nothing but his holy and just wrath for our sins. We are nothing but sinners living in a rebellion against him. But God sent Christ down to a world with sin of hatred. He bore the wrath of God for us. He conquered sin and death. He saved us from eternal condemnation and hell and made us alive in him. So God's saving call of salvation is only effectual and in, effectual in and through Christ. We cannot do anything to deserve that salvation. No matter how good of a life you live, it does nothing towards our salvation. We are sinners and we will never be able to save ourselves. It is only by God's great grace that we can receive that salvation. With our salvation, we have a peace because we know that God will exalt us at the proper time. So we must humble ourselves and make him the God of our lives. We must not make ourselves the God of our lives. So the second portion of verse 10 demonstrates that God will certainly complete what he's inaugurated. So we will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. These four verbs are exactly what happens when we are exalted in Christ in eternal glory. We will be restored from our earthly state to our glorified state through Christ. We will be confirmed that our salvation by faith is sure through Christ. We will be fully strengthened in our faith and trust in God through Christ. We will be fully established in the family of God through Christ. So John MacArthur explains this point a little better than I can. He says, these terms all connote strength and immovability, which God wants for all believers. As they face the spiritual battle, he sets them firmly on the truth of divine revelation, where they stand in confidence and faith 
until they realize their eternal glory. So God has given us these spiritual gifts so that we can use them to defend ourselves in our spiritual battles. So God sets our our faith firm on the trust in God. Our faith and confidence are set in the promise that we will be glorified in Christ. Since we have these promises, it gives us a hope in our sufferings. Since we have these since we have these promises, it gives us a hope in our sufferings. God has called us to eternal glory, and he will strengthen and fortify us so that we will be able to endure till the end. He will promise, he will fulfill his promises to save us and deliver us. God does not change, and his words will always remain true and right. There is no question about whether we as believers will receive our promises and eternal glory. In order, in order for us to receive this eternal glory, all we have to do is have faith and believe. We must rest in the truth that by God's grace and love, Christ conquered our sins and bore the wrath of God so that we can be with him forever. It does not depend on how good of a life that we live. It depends on being humble and saying, I cannot do this on my own. I need your help, God. I am a sinner and I need your grace. Believing and trusting in this gospel is what gives us this promise to eternal glory. When our faith is persevered and we stand firm in the faith, God, who has given these promises to us, will fulfill them. That should bring us peace. To know that no matter what trials or tribulations we face on this earth, God will glorify us at the proper time. Our lives are like a vapor compared to the eternal exaltation that we find in Christ. Life is going to be hard. When we trust in God, we will find a sense of comfort. So after the power of God's sustaining grace, even in the midst of our suffering, we again see the emphasis of God's sovereignty and power. The same God who permits suffering in the lives of his children and even allows the devil to rage at them is the same sovereign God and the God who cares. We see a perfect illustration with this in the life of Job. Job was a wealthy man with, an ex- with a large family and extensive, extensive flocks while living in the land of Uz. He was a blameless man and always careful to avoid doing evil. So Satan appears to God, and, and he believes that Job only praises God because of the abundance that God has given to Job. So God gives Satan permission to torment Job, and, but he cannot take his life while doing so. So Satan challenges God to that and claims that when I'm done with Job, he's not going to bless you anymore. So Job receives four separate messages on the same day that his livestock, his servants, and his ten children all have died to invaders or natural disasters. So Job tears his clothes and shaves his head in in the pain and the sorrow that he feels. But he still blesses God in the midst of it. Satan then afflicts Job with horrible skin sores. Job's wife encourages him to just curse God and commit suicide. Job's three friends say that Job's sin caused this and that he needs to earn merit with God. One of his other friends implied that whatever wrong Job did, he probably deserves worse punishment than what God has actually given him. So, I mean, if you couldn't tell, these are some pretty good friends Job had. 
So Job rebukes his friends, and he trusts that whatever God is doing is for a greater purpose that Job cannot understand. So after Job passed his test of faithfulness, God restores Job and gives him back what double what he had originally before the trials. So to help put this into perspective, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But but with it, the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So times are going to be hard, but God will never allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. We may not always feel him at every single moment, but God's grace will always give us peace through our struggles. We have a hope that God will exalt us at the proper time. So the dominion belongs to him forever. So God wields a mighty hand on behalf of his people. We should be in full comfort knowing that in the end we have victory. So John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What do we have to fear? Sure, we will struggle and have fears, but Christ has already overcome the world. He has conquered sin and death. We have a peace and a hope in him. So if you attended the Amazing Grace concert here in the fall in October, you heard the concluding song, In the End, by Natalie Grant. The lyrics of the chorus say this. There's coming a day the sun will always shine. He's going to wipe every tear from your eyes. Hold on, my brother. Things are going to get better. You're going to smile again because we win in the end. That's our hope. We win in the end. We're going to face trials and tribulations, but Christ is coming again and he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. Life will be without sin, will be without torment, will be without pain, will be without sorrow, and will be without fears and anxieties. Life will be filled with us worshiping God and being exalted in Christ. That's the day that we will be fully glorified. So Peter concludes with a genuine amen. He signifies that he anticipates for the day when God's rule will be evident to all. He longs for when suffering has gone away and glory and peace and joy reign forevermore. So the first practice of humility was to cast our anxieties on God. The second was to stand firm in your faith. And the third was to focus on our hope. So in this sin-cursed world, we have hope. By God's extraordinary grace, even in the midst of suffering, we can look to the future that one day we will be glorified in God. We will be fully restored. We will be fully confirmed. We will be fully strengthened. And we will be fully established through the work of Christ. And we know that we win in the end. So while I start to conclude this sermon, the question I want to ask is, is there something that you are wrestling with that you are not being humble and giving to God? Is there something in your life that you think is too big for God to handle? You may think, Oh, he might not understand my situation or that he's not significant enough for this problem. 
It's not an easy question to ask because I know I struggle with this every day. And I fail every day. We may think that we can just solve our own problems on our own strength and our own knowledge. But that's where we need to be humble and have faith. We need to throw our anxieties on God. Have faith that he can get us through it. And look forward to our hope that we are promised. When God's grace humbles us, we find amidst, in the midst of comfort. When we, when we understand that God is in control and we will not be pushed farther than what we can withstand, that brings us comfort. So we must humble ourselves before the almighty hand of God. We must throw our anxieties on him. We must have faith that he can conquer our fears. We must look forward to the day when sorrows are gone and glory, peace, and joy reign forevermore. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for letting us be able to come to this church that stands firm on your gospel. And thank you for your gospel and for your salvation that you have given us. Because without you, we are nothing but sinners and deserving of God's wrath. But you gave us a way to salvation, eternal life. Away from our sin, away from our fears, away from our sorrows. And you gave us a glory and exaltation in Christ to worship you forever in heaven. May you bless the rest of this day and we may have fellowship together after the service. Jesus now I pray, amen.